This is Tina Douglas, and you're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast with your host, my husband, Liam Douglas. Enjoy! Hidden Snake, 66 degrees north, northern lights from a plane, and more. Greetings, everybody. You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 325 for March 19th, 2023. And first of all, I want to start off this episode by giving thanks once again to my friend Ray Perry from Ray Perry Photography in Tampa, Florida. He was my guest this past Thursday, and we had a really good time on the show. We talked about event photography, including bar mitzvahs and weddings, and we talked about Fujifilm cameras and quite a few other things. Uh, We went off on a little bit of a tangent, but hopefully my listeners enjoyed the episode. All right, so now let's head over to Petapixel and see what stories we have for you this week. Photographer captures amazing shot of snake hidden in the sand. A photographer traveled to Nambia to capture well-camouflaged snakes that exclusively live in the sub-Saharan African country. Marissa Ishimaru captured magnificent photos of Paraguay's adder who are perfectly adapted to hide themselves in the soft sands of the Nambian desert. Quote, they sidewind effortlessly across the dune slopes and they bury themselves in soft sand at the base of bushes, both to ambush lizards and to protect themselves from predators, Isamadu tells Petapixel. Quote, their eyes are on the top of their heads and their nostrils are reinforced and on the top of their noses, so when they are completely buried, they can still see and breathe. And there's some amazing photographs of these snakes in this article in the show notes. Ishimaru went, on, uh, went with a group from the United States who wanted to find all the dwarf adder species that inhabit Nimbia. There are six species of viper in the country. Quote, like my friend, most of my vacations are spent looking for snakes and other wildlife all over the world. So searching for these animals in Nambia sounded like an excellent time, she says. The crew hired Dwayne Brain from the Naturalist Collection who helped them find the elusive snakes. Quote, with Dwayne's help and knowledge, we found all six of the species of vipers, so we accomplished exactly what we went there to do, says Ishimaru. From a photographic perspective, I don't think I could ever capture everything I wanted to in Nambia, but I'm incredibly proud of the shots I captured. The photographer used her Nikon D850 and a Nikkor 60mm prime to capture amazing imagery of not just uh, uh, Paraguay's adder, but also other vipers as well. The trip was incredible. Nambia is a beautiful country, and I found myself taking photos of everything from the plants to the invertebrates to the snakes and the charismatic megafauna, adds Ishimado. This past weekend saw the Sweetwater Rattlesnake Roundup, where thousands of snakes are hunted and brought to the Jamboree, where they are killed. Snakes have been demonized and vilified for eternity, something that Ishimaru would like to see change. Snakes are an important part of our ecosystem, and yet they are often overlooked, except for the dedicated few of us who love to photograph them, she says. 
Snake photographers feel that it is our duty to show the beauty of these animals to foster a sense of curiosity and respect and not fear to ensure these animals are protected. Ishimaru says that her social media feeds are filled with wonderful photos of birds, flowers, and mammals, but not snakes. It's not hard to make these subjects beautiful and welcoming, she adds. More of Ishimaru's work can be found on her Flickr and Instagram, or to buy a print, head to her Etsy. For nature wildlife photography tours in Nambia, then check out the Naturalist Collection. To support snakes, visit Save the Snakes. And I think this is really cool that she was able to go on this trip and get photographs of these elusive vipers from the Adder family. Now, I don't think I've ever talked about it on the show before, but one of my favorite television programs on that Geo Wild is Snake City. And it's all about a gentleman, Simon Keyes, and his girlfriend who go around uh, South Africa during their su- the country's summer months and relocate snakes that infiltrate people's homes and stuff like that. You know, they're out there to do that to protect the snakes. And although snakes have been vilified since the beginning of time, they are a creature or a species of creatures that need to be looked after and protected from extinction because they are vital to the world's ecosystem. 66 Degrees North is a black and white photo series from Iceland's far reaches. The 66th parallel north is a circle of latitude that is 66 degrees north of the Earth's equatorial plane, about 61 kilometers south of the Arctic Circle. It crosses the Atlantic Ocean, Europe, Asia, and North America. At this latitude, the sun is visible for 24 hours during the summer solstice and 2 hours 47 minutes during the winter solstice. I call it North Iceland, and although not all images in this collection are strictly at 66 degrees, it represents my favorite island and location on planet Earth, and one that I am proud to call my spiritual home. My love affair with Iceland started in September of 2012. It was my wife's birthday holiday, although in hindsight it turned into the Tim Neville show, and she spent most of her time taking photos of me while I was busy making images of all the bucket list locations we had visited around Iceland. Kirk Jufel, Thingvalar, Golfoss, Skogerfoss, Dedefoss, My Vatten, and Hoff. Uh, and travel-related photography trips have not really changed since. Since My wife loves the fresh air in places we visit, but the occasional reminder of we have not been here for hours, can we, or we have been here for hours, can we move on, are reminders that she is with me. Back in the early years of my photographic journey, it was all about shooting as wide as possible and filling the frame with foreground and details. In the early years, I was influenced by Mark Adamus's work and a handful of other emerging U.S. photographers. At the time, I was striving to reproduce the foregrounds and explosive color palette they were producing. It took me a few years of learning, reading, and watching to understand what was being done, and although an art form, it somehow distorted my view of photography. I never had the skills in Photoshop to control what was going on and found myself with a portfolio made up of oversaturated one-dimensional images. Nowadays, my field and digital workflow are far simpler. 
and I try my best to get as much right in camera from setting the camera up with the aspect ratio I want the final image to be, along with bracketing for dynamic range. Although recent cameras capture the dynamic range in one frame 90% of the time. Then I used ND filters to control the look of the final image with anything from fast exposures to ones over 10 minutes long. Iceland has helped me find my style, which has now recently changed to focus on the quiet scenes and a minimal approach. It has allowed me to slow down when making photographs, and gone are the days of charging around destinations or my backyard of Sussex, taking hundreds of raws, coming home with a handful of keepers. Iceland offers everything for the adventurous photographer, and on a few trips, we have managed to circle the island in less than 24 hours, chasing the aurora borealis, sleeping for just a few hours at a time in search of that perfect light. At other times, we slow the pace down and spend days in the snow-covered mountains around Mavat, in the northern uh, north of the island, or walking the cliffs of Longranger in the west. Such is my passion for photographing Iceland, and we have returned at least twice a year ever since, returning to classic icons and little-known places that we stumbled upon during the road trip until November 2019, when we had a car accident in the far northeast. Sliding on black ice into a lava field lots does lots of damage. Fortunately, we were uninjured, but the damage done resulted in writing off the hire car the hire car company explained the small and the small print and subsequent costs that I was expected to pay before being sent a replacement vehicle. So my passion quickly turned to frustration. A day later, after being stuck in our hotel waiting for the replacement car to arrive, the weather turned and we faced a harrowing 12-hour journey back to Rejakovic Airport. I know I'm probably not pronouncing these towns right. Uh, in minus 20 degrees Celsius conditions, encountering snow blizzards, freezing fog, and everything in between. It was at this point that we decided we needed a break from Iceland. It was a stark reminder to read the small print and everything you sign and show just how dangerous Iceland can be in bad weather. The period between 2012 and 2019, however, has produced lifelong memories and my best body of work, images that I have revisited and reprocessed in the black and white collection entitled 66 Degrees North. The journey of this collection is inspired by the minimalist landscapes of the North Iceland around Mibatten and, boy, I can't even pronounce these names. Both areas offer conditions and landscapes of what I believe to be close to the highlands, but without the cost or risk involved in venturing into the river-strewn highland roads, or at least that is what I thought. The highlands are an area I'm desperate to visit, but the adventure has so far eluded me. I hope to one day visit on an adventure tour with Bruce Percy to learn from the master of this landscape. My collection consists of images shot from both an aerial perspective and land-based. My favorite location is, in fact, northeast Iceland between Mivatten and Grimastelar. I have visited the area on every trip to Iceland, and it delivers something different every time. The combination of heavy snow and muted gray skies followed by bursts of Arctic light are my favorite conditions, but there is something about the air quality and the calmness and lack of infrastructure that is appealing in any conditions. This year will see me travel back for the first time in three years. It, see, it feels like a lifetime since I last breathed that clean air. 
but I am bursting with compositional ideas for that trip and am still working through files from previous adventures. Check out my recent work on Instagram or my website, which is currently undergoing an update, and my future plans for local workshops in Sussex. So definitely an interesting project, and I think it's really cool. Iceland is definitely an interesting country, although, as he mentions in the article, it can be extremely dangerous, especially during weather, severe weather conditions. So if you do go there, be extremely careful. Olympic athlete captures impressive photos of northern lights from airplane. An Olympic-winning athlete and photography enthusiast ingeniously worked out how to shoot the northern lights midair whilst he was on a flight to Paris. Casey Dawson is a U.S. speed skater who took home a bronze medal at the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing, China. Dawson has also been a keen amateur photographer since he received his first camera, a Nikon D3100 DSLR, over a decade ago. He now regularly takes images on his travels around the world as a professional athlete. During a recent flight to Paris, Dawson realized that he might catch a glimpse of the Northern Lights, otherwise known as the Aurora Borealis, on his flight path as the plane crossed over Greenland and Dawson knew he could not miss an opportunity to photograph the spectacular natural phenomenon. In a viral TikTok video posted on Monday, which has over 1.5 million views, Dawson shared exactly how he managed to shoot the Northern Lights on his plane journey. Quote, there are a lot of perks for being a professional athlete at my level, and one of those is being able to travel to places for free to go to World Cups, especially Europe and Asia, Dawson tells Petapixel. This past season, I was on my way over to Poland, and I was thinking to myself that I might be able to see the Northern Lights just based solely on our flight path. Dawson realized that the plane was flying around the Arctic Circle in a region of Greenland where it would be around 2 a.m. local time, an ideal time to view the Northern Lights. Quote, I decided to pull out my camera in case, which is a Sony a7 IV with a Sigma 24-70 f2.8, and I just kept my eyes locked on the outside, the sky outside, he recalls. I finally saw a hint of green and just movement of what looked like strange clouds at the time because I did not know what to look for, being my first time looking at them. I finally took a picture at around a sixth of a second from my shutter speed, and I was surprised at my result. The colors were so crazy on my camera, but they were hard to see with the naked eye. As Dawson took photos through his seat window of the Northern Lights, it quickly drew the attention of other passengers on the plane. Quote, I just kept snapping picture after picture and people started to notice what was going on. And suddenly half the plane was looking out the left side window, mesmerized, he explains. I have been on many flights, but never one this magical because on half of them, I'm asleep the whole time. More of Dawson's work can be seen on Instagram and TikTok. And that's really cool that he got an opportunity to photograph the Northern Lights. I'm a bit jealous because the Northern Lights are something I've always wanted to photograph myself, but I've never managed to take a trip to actually make that bucket list item come true. Hopefully someday soon. Australian Art Museum rebrands to focus entirely on local photography. The Monash Gallery of Art in Melbourne, Australia, is rebranding as the Museum of Australian Photography, MAPH, to solely concentrate on the art form. 
For more than 30 years, the Monash Gallery of Art, MGA, has collected and exhibited a wide range of visual art that includes paintings, sculptures, and photography. However, the museum's organizers say that since there is currently no institution in the country that specializes in photography, it will solely concentrate on that art form as part of a rebrand as the MAPH. Quote, our transformation of MGA to MAPH is an incredibly significant moment in our history. It is one that celebrates the legacy of all those who have made our gallery into what it is today. Uh, Anuska Piscala, gallery director, says, wow, what a name. Holy cow. Our origins can be traced back to the late 1970s when the city of Waverly had the vision to found a public gallery for its community. Then in the early 1980s, we took the bold step of focusing on collecting Australian photography, becoming the only public gallery to do so in the world. Since then, MGA has established itself as the Australian home of photography and is now home to over 3,700 photographs in the collection. And over that time, more than 300 staff, committee members, trustees, and volunteers have collectively contributed to making it in, into the institution it is today. The shift makes MAPH, the leading museum exclusively dedicated to the collection, conservation, promotion, and exhibition of photography in the country. It also remains the only public institution in the world solely dedicated to collecting Australian photographs. Quote, our new name and branding articulates what we do and reflects the value that MAPH brings to both the community and the arts sector and one that reaches local, national, and international audiences as we cultivate a community that is actively engaged with Australian photography. The museum will officially shift from MGA to MAPH on March 19th at noon local time and will be accompanied by an Art Appreciation Day for families at the gallery. The event is free and open to the general public. So this is really cool. And I didn't realize that in all of Australia, they only had one public venue that was dedicated to Australian photography. And so the shift from being a general art gallery to only specializing in photography does make a lot of sense. And I think it's a really cool thing that they're doing to support photography and Australian photographers as a whole. Very nice thing to do. The Falcam F50, a quick release system for fast onset changes. The Falcam 50 by Lanzi Group is a quick release system that has an incredibly straightforward value proposition. If you've got cameras that use multiple types of stabilization, stabilization gimbals, tripods, rigs, etc., the Falcom F50 is going to make swapping between them a breeze. The Falcam F50 promises to make it much easier to swap your camera between different support systems without interfering with stability. The company says that traditionally these kinds of swaps require you to screw and unscrew plates and heads in what is a cumbersome and time-consuming process. Speaking from experience as a guy who operates his own video production studio for over seven years, I can agree this process is usually the worst. There have been previous attempts at making this relationship between a camera and the many different support systems a photographer or filmmaker needs less of a pain point. But what makes the Falcam F50 stand out is that it's relatively inexpensive. It's well made, and it doesn't add much weight to a setup. That last note means that the Falcam 
F-50 system avoids what I call the totem pole problem, which is where a setup gets so tall the stabilization is compromised. If you're like me, you've never heard of Ulanzi or Felcam before, but that doesn't mean the product isn't high quality. I acquired three separate sets of the Falcon F-50 system, and every single one of the six plates and mounts are extremely well made. For a system that is designed to sit at the core of a photo or video workflow, that couldn't be more important. The Falcam F-50 system is built on a couple of core tenants. First, the majority of the units are made from aluminum alloy, which feels extremely tough and durable while not adding much weight. Each system is rated to withstand 110 pounds of vertical load capacity, which is way more than any va- and than a vast majority of shooters will ever put on it, even if you were to count a full-size movie camcorder, rigging gear, and an entire video tripod head. The Falcam F50 also includes non-slip rubber pads to ensure the attached equipment stays firmly in place, and it ships with a ton of screw sizes so it can seamlessly fit into any photographer or filmmaker's physical workflow. The way the system works is similar to the experience I've had with other similar devices. It's faster to attach a camera than it is to remove it, but not by much. To take attachments off the Falcam F50, you need to pull back on the silver trigger on the side, which retracts a bar from the plate and allows you to pull whatever you have attached, in my case, an entire video tripod head, off. Pulling back the trigger and removing the plate leaves the base in a prepped position with the trigger locked back and open. To reattach, you just need to set the plate uh, back on the base unit and then push down, which clicks the whole thing back into place securely. So it sounds similar to the Manfrotto PL200 in concept. What I like about this particular approach is that once the equipment is clicked into place, you're done. There is no need to tighten anything or make sure that it's set in place. Nope, once it's in, it's not going anywhere. In exchange, you do have to pull back on that silver trigger pretty hard in order to release the powerful springs inside the head. So there is a bit more effort involved in the removal process than I'm used to. Honestly, that's a trade-off I'm willing to make. I would prefer to know that something is locked and not moving than have something easier to remove. Chances are I don't want my camera to move once it's on this thing, so knowing that it's securely in place is better for my peace of mind than the alternative. The Falcam F50 isn't first and foremost designed to be a direct camera to tripod plate system, but there isn't anything in particular preventing you from using it like this. It's basically like the top portion of any tripod head and can attach to a wide range of screw sizes and operates exactly as expected where needed. For example, my webcam setup is pretty DIY, meaning that originally I was just attaching my camera behind my monitor by screwing the base into a light stand. But since the Falcam F50 can attach to that screw instead, I was able to actually make a system that functions pretty much like a tripod. Clearly, there is a lot of different ways you can use this system should the need arise. One last note I want to make is that the Falcam F50 plate is interchangeable with most other video plates on the market. You don't need to use Falcam attachment points with Falcam plates. The company says it's compatible with 90% of Manfrotto's standard quick-release plate systems, which makes it nearly universal across much of the industry. That's huge because the whole idea of using this system is to reduce the friction it takes to attach one thing to another. And Falcam didn't add any friction just for the sake of selling more plate systems. 
So many products in photography and even general technology are over-engineered to offer way more features than anyone feasibly needs. As a result, the Felcam F50 and products like it just feel like a big, deep breath of fresh air. They aren't complex and perform the job they're assigned with precision and without issue. Falcam is asking less for the Falcam F50 than other options that are available in two different configurations depending on your need. Long for camcorders or squared off for more traditional cameras or for positioning under tripod heads. It is also able to provide a lot of the same functionality of other options on the market while being considerably more compact. That last bit is the biggest upside to me. I like the ease of use products like the Falcam F50 offer, but some of them are just too large to me, and that size can seriously impede the overall stability of a setup. The Falcam F50 doesn't do that while still giving me that functionality I want, and it's hard to explain how much value I get from that. Certainly more than the $74 to $89, depending on which plate you want, cost of entry. And I think this is a really cool-looking system, and I have a feeling it's going to be, it become extremely popular with a lot of photographers and videographers. Now, the company that makes this, uh, Ulanzi, I am familiar with, as I have some of their lights currently and other items for my photography that are extremely well-built and reliable. I've had no complaints with any of their products, similar to my experience with Neewer. N-E-E-W-E-R. They seem to make some really great stuff as well. Tolman Media shutdown leaves photographers and clients empty-handed. Tolman Media, one of the nation's largest wedding photo and video companies, abruptly shut down last month, leaving hundreds of photographers unpaid. Couples who booked through Tolman are suddenly without shooters as well. Tolman Media was established in 2020 based out of Provo, Utah, and quickly grew to provide photo and video services for weddings in all 50 states. Advertising 56 total physical locations, Tolman Media boasted that it had captured over 10,000 weddings by the end of 2022. The company's key to rapid growth and success was its decentralized management system, where the main company would send interested couples to a local branch who would handle the actual arrangements. Those local branches bore the Tolman Media name, but were independently operated, similar to how a franchised restaurant works. Quote, Tolman Media is a wedding media company working with local teams of talented photographers and videographers to seamlessly capture your candid moments and the authentic joy felt on your wedding day, the company's website read in January. But on February 15th, out of the blue, the company shut down. This is a formal notice that as of February 15th, 2023, Tolman Media LLC, Tolman Media Empire LLC, and Tolman Media Dynasty LLC have officially ceased operations and been dismantled, the company announced on its website. Quote, all assets have been sold, there is no cash remaining in the business, and no further employees, members, managers, or officers to are or officers active. All websites, email, and contact information has been shut off. Tolman's announcement surprised both shooters and clients as there are many photographers who have not been paid for weddings for several months and clients who had not received photos or videos. That, unfortunately, doesn't appear as though it will change. As expected, Tolman's closure left a large number of clients in the lurch. Weddings are almost always planned months in advance, and the company's solution to this problem felt messy to remaining parties. 
In short, the company told clients that their weddings would still be covered by a photographer and that any outstanding balance remaining would need to be paid directly to that shooter. The down payment that was paid to Tolman was not being refunded. Quote, as you know by now, Tolman Media has unfortunately closed its doors as of February 15th, 2023, and will no longer be booking, managing, or overseeing our upcoming weddings, the company wrote to contractors in an email seen by Petapixel. Quote, we have sent out emails directly connecting you to your upcoming bookings with the final amount expected to be split directly between the creatives. Tolman Media previously took a management and editing fee off the top of each package. That extra money will now be paid to you directly from the bride as you fulfill the wedding. Some clients paid for wedding services in full, which means Tolman's direction was even more confusing. To that, the company seems to indicate that it expects photographers to fulfill the contracts, even if they won't see any money from it. Quote, we have a rare situation where a bridegroom paid in full to Tolman Media, which is now out of cash and insolvent. It is still our highest priority to make sure that all our brides get the beautiful wedding imagery they paid for. Through your accepting the final half directly from directly on the remainder of your bookings, you will ultimately make more money than if you shot these weddings as a Tolman, Tolman Media creative. Speaking to Petapixel, one former Tolman contractor said that most of the weddings booked through Tolman were paid in full up front, so Tolman is basically expecting photographers to shoot weddings for free. Even if there is an outstanding balance remaining, it was usually only 50%, which means the photographer would only make half the value of their work. Though, as mentioned, Tolman argues this is more than they would have made if Tolman was still operating. Even more, with Tolman out of business, photographers won't wouldn't be bound to any clients by contracts anymore. If a photographer shot a wedding booked by Tolman, there wouldn't be any recourse if the client ultimately decided not to pay the remaining outstanding balance. In an interview with KSL-TV, an NBC affiliate in Utah, one client said she didn't even realize that Tolman Media shut down until she tried to call the company to ask what the status was for their upcoming wedding. Quote, I think I went through the stages of grief, Lindsay Penn told KSL-TV, like I was emotional and then I was angry. A hot mess from the very beginning. Petapixel spoke with a contractor that worked with Tolman Media since April of 2022. They have asked to remain anonymous, but their identity has been confirmed. Their story mimics multiple others that have been shared with Petapixel. Quote, I had heard great things about them, and I loved the idea that I could keep my footage that I shot. Also, it was a draw that I didn't have to edit if I didn't want to, they say. But looking back, they say that it was from the beginning a complete hot mess. After onboarding, which the contractor says went great, they were connected with their state's area manager. That's where things started to go downhill. Quote, my area manager didn't connect with me for three weeks despite my attempts at contact. I did not get added to the company HoneyBook until I was literally at a wedding with a bride. I had no way to get her information other than, than HoneyBook. I had to beg my manager to send me her information. HoneyBook is a client workflow management tool that Tolman affiliates use to manage their weddings and photographers. My first wedding I took was also not in my area. My area manager was desperately trying to fill some weddings for the New Mexico area, and she posted about 10 jobs, five of which were on the same date. I had agreed to take one, but I told her some things I would need, the contractor continues. 
Firstly, tollmen would pay for travel, but it was between 50 and 75 cents per mile driven. I should mention at this point, I was about six months pregnant with a slightly higher risk pregnancy. My doctor had given me the okay to shoot, but not really to travel for long periods of time. So after getting corporate to agree to the terms set by my doctor, I was told to pick the cheapest flights and the cheapest hotel, basically a sketchy motel. So I did. While not the best situation, the contractor took it in stride and successfully shot the wedding. Overall, the cost to shoot that wedding outside their region, combined with the fee for the job, was $890. Quote, I sent in my invoice once the video was delivered per Tolman's request the same month I shot it, June. I didn't get paid until about a week before my son was born, the very last week of September, they explained. I had hounded my poor manager countless times, and she had blamed it on the fact that they had gotten a new accountant. She made me or gave me his number to directly reach out to him, and I did and was paid finally. The fact that they were paid is actually unusual, as countless photographers who worked for Tolman alleged they still remain unpaid now months after completing work. According to a private Discord chat that Petapixel has seen, many photographers are out hundreds or thousands of dollars since the business suddenly closed. The issue of payments is widespread and had been for some time. Brennan Tolman, the founder and former CEO of Tolman Media, shared a video with contractors explaining the situation from his perspective and promising payments were coming. The video was uploaded in late January, early February, and has since been taken down. In the video, Brennan Tolman says payment delays were caused by previous company decisions and everyone would be paid in 30 to 60 days. Quote, please rest assured that you will be taken care of by Tolman Media and will get those invoices paid, Tolman says. The company shut down soon after and payments are still outstanding. The mirror below was uploaded by a concerned photographer who didn't want Tolman's promise that money was coming to be deleted. Tolman's centralized media empire is currently in flux. Tolman Media Northwest, for example, has updated its website to explain that it is still operating and rebranding. The former Tolman affiliate did not respond to Petapixel's repeated requests for comment. As explained by KSL-TV, multiple couples were unable to get their money back from Tolman Media, and in order to assure their weddings were photographed, were forced to hire new photographers at full price. Clients were not getting refunds and never would. At the time of publication, Brennan, Media, uh, Brennan Tolman is in the wind. All forms of communication are being ignored, and the company has not responded to multiple requests for comment. But a source familiar with the situation tells Petapixel that Tolman has left Utah and is currently living in Nevada, where he has purchased a new house. Quote, everyone needs to know to never do business with him. A photographer who is still owed thousands of dollars tells Petapixel. A contingent of former contractors is currently investigating the steps they need to take to file a class action lawsuit against Brennan Tolman and the former Tolman Media. And this is certainly a hot mess. And it just goes back to the old saying that if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. It sounds like this guy was basically what we used to call a snake oil salesman, and he took the bulk of the money and split. And that's very sad. I'm going to take a break right here, and then I'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the Liam Photography Podcast. The best way to support the show is to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. 
If you want to leave comments or suggestions for future episodes, you can call or text the show at area code 470-294-8191. And you can email the show at liam at liamphotographypodcast.com. You can find the show notes and links at liamphotographypodcast.com. And you can tweet the show at liamphotoatl using the hashtag liamphotopodcast. And now back to the show. And we're back. So now we're going to head on over to the rumor sites and see what they have for us this week. First up from Canon Rumors, Canon releases firmware version 1.8.1 for the Canon EOS R6. It seems there was a bug or two in the recently released version 1.8.0 firmware for the Canon EOS R6. There was an issue with the Error 70 that has now been resolved. Version 1.8.1, first of all, it is now possible to crop and resize images during transfer to an FTP server. Two, after updating to firmware version 1.8.0, the phenomenon, the error 70, et cetera, occurs under specific conditions, has been fixed. And number three, it also fixed some other minor bugs. And you can download this new firmware from Canon's official website, and you can find the link to the firmware in this article in the show notes, and unfortunately, that's the only story that Peta- or that uh, Canon Rumors has for us for this week. And now on over to Nikon Rumors, the new Nikon Nikkor Z85 f1.2s lens will be released on March 24th. Here are the latest reviews. This Nikon lens is expected to be released later this month, according to Nikon Plaza Osaka. For pricing and availability, check out one of our sponsors in the U.S., Adorama, V&H, Amazon, Pulse Photo, and Service Photo. And Germany at Koch, Earnhardt, and Calumet. In the U.K. at Wex. And in Canada at Camera Canada. Here are the latest Nikkor Z 85mm f1.2 S lens YouTube reviews. More can be found in the accompanying link. And you can check out all these videos for yourself in this article in today's show notes. Next up, new Nikon rebates and savings are introduced all over the world except in the U.S. Nikon Europe announced new savings. Uh, so far, Rabat, Akaton, where you can get up to 100 euros or 90 euros off on a Nikon Z APS-C camera, such as the Z30, Z50, or ZFC, until April 11th. See the details at PhotoCotch, Photo Earnhardt, Wex, and all the Amazons for Europe. Last week, Nikon Japan also announced a new cashback campaign that will last until April 17th and will include the Z62 and Z72 for the first time. In the previous campaigns, the Z7 II had only a 20,000 yen cash back. This time, it's 30,000 yen. Nikon Japan usually does not announce a new successor model while the current model is on sale. The current Nikon discounts in Canada are ending on March 30th. Only in the U.S., the Nikon rebates remain unchanged since this February. So that is the latest on Nikon Nikon rebates and deals. If you want to get any of that gear, you need to bust out the wallet now before these sales end. And now on over to Fuji Rumors. Vote your ultimate Fujifilm GF lens poll. Let Fuji know what you want. Back in January, I asked for you to tell us in the comments what you wish in terms of future GF lenses. You answered by dropping lots of lens suggestions in the comments. It was not easy, but I've condensed your wishes into 30 lenses. Some lenses might sound a bit unconventional, but they are 
merger of several wishes. Be careful what you wish for, f2.8 zooms. The list includes three zoom lenses with an f2.8 aperture. I am not sure if everybody is fully aware of what f2.8 means on GFX, so let me clarify. I get it, the typical high-end workhorse full-frame zoom lenses are f2.8. But in order to get the shallow depth of field on a f2.8 full-frame lens on the GFX system, you actually need only f3.5 on GFX. In fact, current G, uh, F4 GF lenses are already quite close to those full-frame 2.8 lenses. F4 on GFX gives a 3.16 depth of field on full-frame. So what you ask for if you vote for 2.8 GFX zooms are zoom lenses with a full-frame equivalent of F2.2 depth of field. And to get an idea of what that means in terms of size and price, check out the Canon RF 28-70 F2L. One of the very rare mirrorless zoom lenses, if not the only one, that is faster than f2.8. I personally don't want such lenses. As an f4 GF lens owner's owner myself, I can say that f4 is more than enough for my needs. It's close enough to f2.8 full-frame zooms. If you want something faster, then for my needs, it's better to go prime lens path. But it's your survey, your recommendations, so the list will include f2.8 lenses. But my dream lens is, maybe your dream lens might not be in the list, but you might find something similar to it. Drop the vote on the lens that is closest to your wish. And you can vote now on this Ultimate GF Lens Wish Survey. And so far, they have a 16mm f3.5, an 18.63, a 20mm f2, a 28 f1.7, a 35 f1.7, a 38 f3.5, a 45 f5.6, a 50 f2, a 70 f2, a 95 f3.5, a 110 f2 mark II, a 110 f4 one to one macro. A 135 f2.4, a 180 2.8, a 200 mm f3.5 1 to 1 macro, a GF 250 f1.8, a 450 f5.6, an 800 mm f5.6, a 16 to 28 f5.6. I apologize for that brief background noise. I had forgotten to turn off my sleep apps alarm which was set to go off at 7 a.m. So that's how early I've been up recording this episode. All right, so a 23 to 105 F64, a 30 to 90 F4, a 35 to 130 F4.8, a 45 to 90 F2.8, a 75 to 110 F5.6 to 6.3, a 110 to 160 F2.8, a 135 to 250 F2.8 to 4, a 200 to 400 F5.6, a 300 to 500 F5.6, a 20 millimeter F4 tilt and a 30 to 80 millimeter f3.5 cinema lens. So quite a list of lenses for the GF mount that users would love to see come to market. Now for myself personally, I'm currently happy with what I have. I have the 50 millimeter f3.5, which again is a 2.8 and full frame equivalent. I have the 23 millimeter f4, and then I also have the new uh, 35 to 70 f4. Four, five to five, six, I think is what that lens is. And I'm happy with all three of them. They are spectacular lenses. Irix Sin lenses for Fujifilm X mount announced. 
IRIX has added the Fujifilm X mount to its cinema lens lineup. The IRIX 11mm T4.3, the 15mm T2.6, the 21mm T1.5, the 30mm T1.5, the 45mm T1.5, the 150mm T3.0 macro 1 to 1, and the 150 T3 tele. They are all they all should be available for purchase shortly at BH Photo, Amazon, and Adorama. If you're looking for any of these, and you can also see their accompanying YouTube video, which you can find in this article in today's show notes. And last from Fuji Rumors for this week, Expoto. Meet the exposure donut and how it could work on Fujifilm cameras. Now, full disclosure, Tim did not pay Fuji Rumors to publish this. He started to work on this concept using a Fujifilm X-T1 camera. You see the first prototype at the accompanying link. Feel free to give Tim your feedback in the comments. There is no way around it. If you want to bring your photography to the next level, then at some point you have to leave the world of full auto. But leaving the auto world to go partially or fully manual can be intimidating, confusing, and that was the case also for Tim Hugh Larson. When Tim's son was born, he wanted to really understand his camera and get the most out of it. In this process, Tim wanted to create a more intuitive way to control the camera. What he ultimately came up with is Expoto, a new user interface with an exposure donut that is visible on the LCD and EVF of the camera itself. Expoto takes the essential elements of any exposure, light, time, aperture, sensitivity, and visualizes them in the form of an exposure donut, where the length of each colored arc is proportionate to each of these values. The exposure donut shows these four elements all contribute to the brightness of your image. And it makes clear that the three you control on the camera, time, aperture, and sensitivity, all have the side effect of making your picture blurry, background blur, bokeh, motion blur, and grain blur or noise. Expoto can also uh, work in uh, also works in different ways. Touchscreen interface, existing thumb dials, and a color LCD in place of the monochrome one on the X-H2 and in combination with the viewfinder. It could also be used in very manual cameras like the X-Pro3. This could be a dedicated circular touchscreen with a wheel around it, a bit like the Leica MD. Tim wrote to me, Fujifilm has done more than any other camera company to prioritize manual exposure control. They have dedicated physical shutter speed and ISO controls on their cameras. The exposure donut could be a continuation of this trend. Expoto's goal is to be an easy-to-use interface to control ISO, aperture, and shutter speed. The donut could, on future cameras, also control electronic ND, lighting, and computational image stacking. The main target are customers who right now use top-of-the-range smartphone cameras because they want to take better images but won't upgrade to a real camera because they are confused by traditional camera controls. Down below is the Cinema D video that shows you more about it. Above, you can see potential implementations of this concept on Fujifilm cameras. And if you want to get more of a feel for Expoto, you can email Tim at tim at expoto.photo. He can sign you up for a beta iPhone app, an interactive proof of concept, and he can let you know when a fully functioning version becomes available. If any YouTubers are reading this, Tim is also looking for someone to collaborate with him to make a short video that teaches the basics of exposure using the exposure donut. 
And I think this is a pretty clever idea, and it'll be really cool if there is a way that he can implement this on Fujifilm cameras. I think it would actually help a lot of photography students and hobbyists move their photography to the next level as a fully or partially manual shooter. And last up for this week from Sony Alpha Rumors, likely first tiny image of the Sony ZV-E1 and new confirmed specs. A Sony Alpha Rumors reader, thanks, posted or spotted what might be the first small piece of image showing the ZV-E1. This has been shared by an Instagrammer. He also told me what he learned from this image. Big back wheel, red record button on top, second button looks like front back focus like other ZV, uh, grip bigger than the ZV-1. And trusted sources share some more details about the ZV-E1 AF from the A7R5, but it has even better detection. Body overheats a lot at the moment. Lots of new AI features, very innovative, priced between $2,000 and $2,500. So this is the summary for the Sony ZV-E1 specs. New ZV-E1 E-mount camera is based on the Sony AS7 III. Same AS7 III 12-megapixel uh, sensor, 4K60 and 4K120 with no crop, but it appears 120 might be coming later via firmware update. No pixel binning, 409K ISO, AF from the A7R5, but is even better detection. Body overheats a lot at the moment. Lots of new AI features, similar body style to the ZV-E10, but in the size of the Sony A7C and with some FX3 elements, priced slightly below 2500 announcement on March 29th at 3 p.m. London time. There will be plenty of rumors and also possibly image leaks. Be sure to follow him on YouTube channel, Discord, Instagram, uh, Facebook, and Twitter to not miss any news and rumors. And I'm talking about the owner of Sony Alpha Rumors. Sony preparing an April 1st joke, images of a new Sony A7LV camera for left-handers. Big warning, at the moment, I believe those leaked images may be showing a joke being prepped by Sony for April Fool's. They do not come from my trusted sources, but from a new source. The images he shared were actually from an alleged Sony presentation and show much more than I am posting here. For privacy reasons, I did crop the images and upsize the resolution with Topaz AI to show the camera only. So please, again, don't count me accountable for this leak. At the moment, I believe this might be a real leak of an April Fool's Day preparation from Sony. The new uh, Sony A7LV, with that warning in mind, let's move on to the images. They do show the new A7LV, which is basically the A7R5 made for left-handers. Now, if this is real, this would be the first ever digital camera made for left-handers. But my bad is this is a Sony April Fool's Day joke. And there's also an accompanying YouTube video from Sony Alpha Rumors that you can check out in this article in today's show notes. Remember to check out the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook group. It is a private group and you must answer a security question to join, which is the name of the host of the show, myself, Liam. And I've also opened it up to allow you to give the name of a previous guest on the show to show that you are a listener. Once you're in the group, you are free to post your own original work. I'm also the admin of the Fujifilm GFX 50R group, which is the largest group for the 50R on Facebook. If you own or plan to own the 
are. You can request to join that group, but you do have to answer two security questions to join that group. You can find my work at liamphotography.net and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at liamphotoatl. If you like abandoned buildings and history, you can find my projects at forgottenpiecesofgeorgia.com and forgottenpiecesofpennsylvania.com. All right, that's going to wrap up episode 325 of the Liam Photography Podcast. I want to thank all of my listeners once again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you might be getting your podcast. Also wanted to let you know if you do listen to the show on Spotify, for some reason their uh, fee, feed for the show wasn't updating. I have no idea why. There were two listings for the show on Spotify. One only showed up to episode 179, and the other one only showed up to episode 189. So I contacted Spotify, had them delete my feed from my podcaster on Spotify account so that both of them were purged. And then I went in and re-added the feed, and it is now updated. So if you do listen on Spotify and you couldn't figure out where all the other episodes are, they are all there now. So you should be good going forward. Still not sure what caused the problem and and Spotify didn't give me an answer. So I just wanted to let my listeners know. So I apologized again that you weren't getting all of the episodes directly from your Spotify app, but now you are. So you should be updated all the way up to episode 325, which is this episode from today. Also wanted to thank once again, Boo Ray Perry from Boo Ray Perry Photography in Tampa for showing up as a guest on the show this past Thursday. He and I had a wonderful conversation on the show. Hopefully you enjoyed it. I know we got off on a few tangents, but when that happens, it seems to make the episodes even more popular and more heavily downloaded. Now, I did also want to give a shout out to Daniel Carpenter of Fujifilm. He's the manager of marketing at Fujifilm North America, I believe it is. And he was kind enough to hook me up with a brand new loaner X100V so that I could do an unbox and review of that particular travel and street photography camera. And I've been having a lot of fun with it. I've only been out with it for a day or so uh, due to inclement weather in North Carolina and cold and all that other stuff, but I am planning to get out with it more. He was kind enough to send it to me on a three-week loan, and I will be doing a bunch of TikTok and Instagram stories videos on that particular camera. There's a lot of things to cover about that camera. The fact that it has a leaf shutter, the fact that it has built-in ND filters, it is just a ridiculously great camera. I super, super enjoy shooting with it. And I'm definitely going to have to get one of my own. The problem being that right now it's backordered everywhere because of the TikTokers making it so popular. And I'm not saying that to bash TikTokers, but I think the vast majority, as Boo Ray and I talked about on Thursday's episode, the vast majority of the TikTokers are just buying the camera because it looks cool and retro, and they don't actually have any idea how to use 90% of the features on the camera itself, which means they could save themselves a bit of money and just get the Ricoh GR3, which is a compact camera system that can do quite a few of the same things as the X100B, but it's not a direct replacement. There is no direct replacement for the X100B unless Fujifilm someday releases the sixth generation of that particular body. 
Whether or not they will, I don't know, because as Bure and I talked about, there isn't really much they could add to the current camera to release a new version that would compel people to upgrade unless they bump the sensor from 26 megapixels to 40, like they did in the X-T5 and the X-H2. And they brought back the D-pad that uh, Blu-ray is sorely missing right now. Um, I personally think they could add an eight-stop ND filter, but he thinks I'm crazy on that. <laughs> but if you're listening, Fuji, I want an eight-stop ND filter in the X100V's replacement, if you do re release a replacement. Now, the interesting thing is, it is the fifth generation currently of that particular camera, the X100 line. And from everyone I've talked to that's been shooting the X100 line for a number of years now, the 5 or the B has all of the previous iterations of the camera's quirks, bugs, and issues completely resolved. So if it's now a flawless X100 camera, what more could Fujifilm do to it to create a sixth generation? That's an interesting question. And I honestly have no idea what they could do to a sixth generation body that would compel people to upgrade. But as for myself, I'm falling in love with the X100V and I definitely got to get one for myself somehow, some way, someday. All right, that's going to wrap up this episode. I will see you all again on Thursday.